Welcome, welcome, welcome to the working that is Chrononaut Chronicles. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic adventure. Now, the show is, of course, sponsored by mysticalwares.com. Uh, that is Derek Condit's metaphysical supply shop located in Mount Vernon, Washington. So if you're in the area, uh, definitely check out the store. And if not, uh, and even if you are, definitely go to the website, see everything there that he has to offer, including a free scalar energy session uh, available weekly. It, it changes uh, week for week. More on that later. But what is it that we exactly do here on Coronat Chronicles? Well, this is, since this is a working, right, this is a four-part working, and the overall, the end goal of of this working is to help anchor in whatever your highest and best timeline is. And that is a decision that only you can make, right? So I'm not uh, uh, offering advice at all here, really. Uh, we're just uh, going through some helpful exercises that would uh, enable you to better manage your timeline, so to speak. So what exactly are the four steps? Well, these the are things that Bill does every day. Well, uh, uh, the the podcast actually keeps me on track. I haven't looked at the almanac in forever since, well, since we recorded like a month ago. I think it's been a month since our last show. So um, I wish I could say that. Um, even the gratitude segment. But yes, those are our two two first uh, steps or our first parts. The, we cover the old farmer's almanac very quickly at the beginning, and this helps us expand our awareness, especially in relationship to uh, planetary energies and where they are. And if we want to work with them and capitalize on them at all, uh, specifically, I guess the moon, there's a lot of moon information in the almanac. And the more I learn about the moon, uh, the more it's probably a good idea to keep an eye on it and to kind of uh, ebb and flow with its energy, or at least be able to mitigate it or work, work to you know, better work with it. Right. Uh, so yes, awareness with the almanac is the first part. Uh, gratitude. Our gratitude segment is the second part, and the point behind this is, uh, it's, it's, it's intense, right? It is love. It is to connect our hearts and our minds to create that coherence and uh, to hopefully sustain the field, definitely throughout the show, but in between meetings as well. So, um, yes, I uh, haven't really thought about, well, actually, I have thought about gratitude since, since the last show, so that is something I do pretty much every day try to anyway but uh yeah so love a very key ingredient here in this working and that brings us to the third segment which is the silver segment and this is all about expansion we are look learning something new and we're looking for silver linings if there are any to be found and then uh, the last part is the sword segment and this really deals in uh, timeline management this is where we get into helping in well, all of this helps to anchor in your, your highest and best timeline, but this uh, the sword segment deals in matters involving spirit, dimensions, metaphysics, timelines, consciousness, and transformation. And the transformation is, is the key part in this, I would say, uh, sword segment, because we're, we're making a, a, a choice, right? And a choice involves moving from one state to another, possibly, hopefully moving out of a victim mentality and into a hero mentality. A lot of this uh, is uh, the point behind a lot of spells, I guess. Uh, this one in particular is a reminder, right? That uh, we 
we are not victims. There are only volunteers here. So this 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 segment um, is an exploration in method in how to most effectively and efficiently use our thoughts. Uh, our thoughts are expressions of consciousness, and so thinking intentionally can navigate us towards the fulfillment of of our desire, our highest and best timeline. And this week, for the silver segment, we've got a few headlines, plus a another profile in wizardry. We're going to explore green wizardry and what that looks like, according to the schema put forth by Azazel, uh, involving the four factions, which is something that we have covered before in show. I definitely go back and start with, I think we did a gold faction wizard, so uh, start there maybe. That was Joseph McMonagall. And then the sword segment is we're continuing on with our exploration of Neville Goddard's 1952, The Power of Awareness. We'll be reading from the chapter entitled Attention today, which I think is pretty fitting. And yeah, that's a short, short reading. So uh, the bulk of this will be uh, silver segment stuff, which is okay because we haven't had an episode in a while. Life gets crazy sometimes. But uh, speaking of uh, not being able to stay on schedule, we're actually recording this on a Thursday, but uh, serendipitously, it is also uh, 1-11, uh, so we got that triple, triple one in the date today. And it is also a new moon. It's a new moon, and it is also conjunct with Pluto. I'm saying also a lot. So yeah, that's Thursday, today, uh, new moon, conjunct with Pluto, and it looks like Sunday, we have uh, the moon and Saturn conjunct, going into Monday of next week. We we like to forecast out for a week when we do the the Old Farmer's Almanac. Uh, Monday is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, actually, so uh, one of my favorite holidays, I guess, even though we don't get it off work anyway I mean, if you work for a bank maybe you might um in addition to mlk day the moon and neptune will be conjunct on monday and that pretty much rounds out the coming week for the old farmer's almanac which brings us to the gratitude segments and my gratitude has been exercise recently I have restarted uh, my, my routine, I'm making some tweaks to the number of reps and the resistance bands and the circuits at the end. So I'm kind of uh, revamping my old routine that uh, Todd Cave actually helped put together. We've had him on the show before. And interestingly enough, I went to my biofield tuning practitioner my sound healer here in town i haven't seen her in well over a year i think well no pretty i think it was shy of a year but anyway uh she said i looked good for you know for energetically uh the energy flow was good and she had asked if i'd been doing anything uh, to help with that and the only thing that could come that came to mind was was the wim hof breathing which i i was doing more of you know weeks ago but uh I think the main thing is exercise because it is breath work, right? Because when you're exercising your breath to movement, right? So, which is, you know, 
but still breath. Just an well, yeah, I mean, every single system in your body is connected. If you are using it, you're exercising it. So you're doing something you don't normally do, and you're highly oxygenating your body. Yeah, yeah, and and she was able to notice notice that. So there were there were just a few minor uh, issues that popped up. Right, everybody. She likes to say that everybody's like an onion, right? Everybody's got different layers and different things to come to the surface during during different sessions, right? And I had uh, a one one thing pop out in the uh, the gestation part of my field, which is at the very very edge, like before you were born type thing. And then there were a, few, a, a couple other uh, ancestral issues that popped up that weren't mine necessarily. If we want to use that possessive term uh, but they were i was i don't know holding energy or connected to ancestors that needed needed some love that's all just needed to send them send them some love so that was that was good that was a good experience and uh yeah grateful for that too but uh yeah um adam what uh thank you for being here by the way and uh what are you grateful for oh thank you for being here too big shout out to your parents yeah, I just, yeah, it was it was nice to see them over the holidays. Got to spend a week with them. So, yeah, lots lots to be thankful for. Yeah, my gratitude picks up about where we last recorded. I've now been employed for about three weeks now, and I am both super happy for that and super happy for the fact that I'm working in an industry and have a job that, yeah, it could not be any better. It's the most enjoyable position I've ever had. So for that, I'm incredibly grateful. Yeah, that's a, seems like a, a good fit. And yeah, I'm excited for you, especially since we did that, that sigil to help out with that. Cause my qualifier was the, the uh, most perfect or the perfect occupation. The perfection was in there. I couldn't, I don't remember the exact wording, but uh, yeah seems like it worked out that makes me yeah absolutely and i had a stinker come along that i thought was going to be ace and had to quit the job after two days so yeah it was one of those you think you've hit rock bottom and then boom best thing ever so hey i say it worked it did it did work and uh yeah so making sigils is uh that kind of leads into i think one of the stories that you had lined up doesn't it i do have some stories and this is more of a a really stinking cool and right up our alley but b an opportunity for some listeners out there if you are one of the candidates for a new experiment that dean raiden is performing i want to be a candidate that sounds exciting all right, so for anybody who doesn't know, Dean Radin is a scientist at the Noetic Institute. Uh, I'm a huge fanboy of his. He's been uh, really just involved in so many aspects of science and really connecting science to what would be considered the esoteric or magical practices. And this is a continuation on that work. So I'm going to play a clip here. It's about, I think, three to four and a half minutes long. It's going to describe everything. And we have had Dean Radin on the 
the podcast before, not this podcast, but we had him on 13 questions as a guest. Yeah, we did. That was awesome. Clicking play. Hello, I'm Dean Radin, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and principal investigator for the sigil experiment. This short video is an introduction to this experiment. SIGIL is an acronym for a scientific investigation of the role of gazing with intuition at light. Gazing with intuition means seeing not with the eye, but with the mind's eye, intuitively or by the imagination. SIGIL is also a word for an esoteric magical practice that involves creating a symbol for an intention or a goal that you wish to happen. The goal for this study is to investigate the quantum observer effect, which refers to a curious property of quantum mechanics in which observing or measuring a quantum object like a photon changes the behavior of that object. In oversimplified terms, this suggests that something about consciousness may play an important role in the physical world. Another video on this website goes into more detail on the background and scientific studies that are exploring this idea. Let me just say in summary that there is substantial independently repeated empirical evidence collected over the past century and published in scientific journals that supports the idea that this mind-matter interaction effect is quite real. The effects tend to be very small in absolute magnitude, and they can be quite variable from one person to the next. But this is not uncommon when studying the leading edge of the life sciences, and especially when it comes to human behavior. So these kinds of studies require a great deal of data and statistical evaluation of the results. But again, when the existing studies are analyzed, the preponderance of the results suggests that consciousness interacts directly with aspects of the physical world. This experiment then has two main goals. The first is to explore if focused attention and intention can in fact cause a measurable change in the behavior of light. This experiment is important because it addresses a long-standing problem in mainstream physics, which I've already mentioned as the quantum observer effect. We know it's a problem because there are multiple interpretations of this effect, and while some may insist it has nothing to do with consciousness, that conclusion is not supported by a growing body of experimental evidence. The second goal is to recruit people with certain skills or talents. We're doing this recruitment process through four phases or steps. The first step is the one you're looking at right now. We're casting a net worldwide to invite adult candidates who can understand and read English to fill out questionnaires that ask about you, your personality, your beliefs and experiences. Previous studies show that these factors are predictors of how well people can perform in these kinds of experiments. We're especially interested in people who have experience and engage in practices that are designed to enhance the ability to focus attention and intention. This would include meditators, martial artists, or other athletic styles that require exceptional mental control and one-pointed attention. It could also include Wiccans, neo-pagans, witches, and others engaged in magical, magical rituals and practices, especially the use of sigil magic. Those who spontaneously or through intense practice have also learned to exercise one of their or more psychic abilities, like clairvoyance, would be additional good candidates. In that sense, the ideal candidate would be a long-term meditator who practices sigil magic 
and can exercise clairvoyance at will. After analyzing the results of these questionnaires, we'll invite promising candidates to go on to step two, which will be a series of performance tests. These are standardized online tests that measure the degree to which you can control focused attention. In step three, the top 100 people selected from step two will be invited to a Zoom call, one person at a time, by members of the ION science staff. The purpose of that call is to describe the experiment in enough detail for you to decide if this is something you're really motivated to do because it will take at least seven hours of your time over the course of one month. We also want to be sure that you're serious because we'll be sending you an optical system that was custom made for this study and which will be the physical target for this mind matter interaction study. You want to, uh, you'll be able to keep the device for your experiments afterwards, or you can send it back to us if you wish. But it requires that you have an up-to-date PC or Mac computer, a quiet place to do the experiment, and a convenient access to the internet. Like this experiment should not be attempted by using the Wi-Fi at a McDonald's or a Starbucks because it's far too noisy and busy. The final step will involve our selecting 50 individuals who we judge from the three previous steps. So are you interested, Bill? Yeah, it seems pretty rigorous. Um, probably won't make it past like the second round, maybe. I don't know. Never say never. And, you know, this might be something that uh, Mr. Shungite is interested in. Yeah. He is, uh, it seems to be uh, an individual that, you know, if interested in having the time. And I, I just want to wet your whistle a little bit more. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. And also, if you wouldn't mind, would you be able to include all these links in oh. the show notes? Awesome. Encourage you to go directly to Dean Radin and subscribe to him on YouTube. And all the details will be able to be linked to him through there. But I'm going to skip ahead a couple of minutes. I think you'll like this, Bill. Computer, a modern up-to-date Windows computer, and also a modern up-to-date Mac computer. I've also used AI to create this uh, little sigil with this all-seeing eye in it as a, a reminder of this is all about not the physical eye, but your mind's eye in the experiment. And so this is a sticker. You can stick it on the box or anywhere else that you may like. And I'll also include this, this little laughing Buddha statue that you can put on, on top of the box to remind yourself that the attitude that it takes to do this kind of experiment or almost any kind of psychic experiment is one of lightheartedness. You you don't want to spend uh, you don't want to grunt and groan at the at the box here to get the results that you're, you're looking for. Uh, it's best to keep the effortless striving sense. You're certainly applying effort because there is a task at hand, but it should be effortless. So you strive with no effort. It sounds like a paradox, but that's the kind of state that seems to be best in order to do these kinds of tasks. So there you go. Seems like Mr. Dean Raiden is right up our alley. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I like the old effortless striving um, mm -hmm. analogy that reminds me of controlled folly, which I think the Batum Zealand discussed in reality transurfing, which we have yet to cover on the show, but we will eventually. And yeah, that's just an overall good 
freaking tool to have in your bag to be able to effort, effortlessly strive towards any any goal, really. To take but attitude and plan. here's what I love. The things that we do on the show, the doing the sigil, guess what? Being turned into science. The attention of putting the intention on something. And essentially, as I understand it, looking into this experiment with the optical light drives, is it'll provide feedback, much in the way that remote viewing does, so that you can tell how you're doing. And it's also going to have you give intention for 30 seconds and then not give intention for 30 seconds. And it's something that you need to train yourself or be able to enact and pull back. Or if you're in the sense of meditating, not pulling out of the meditation, but going from being in a meditative state to shifting your mind elsewhere and bringing it back. And there's something in that putting the intention upon it that they're looking to see if it changes the light within the box. So it's a little scientific experiment. It's shooting uh, photons and recording them uh, in some way. I haven't looked into the exact details. Um, I found this today and was just blown away. Yeah, that little device they send you. I mean, that would just be cool to have to you know, play around with, like experiment with, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the ghost in the machine type thing. It's like, like a, or a ghost box. It's like it's actually measuring your own clairvoyance. Yeah. And you he get... has done experiments on that in the past, showing that there absolutely 1000% is precognition in humans. And I've probably mentioned it before, but they would flash images on a person and they're reading your biometric signs. So kind of like, um, you know, your heart rate, your pulse, the uh, conductivity of your skin, how much you're sweating, all of these things, you know, I think like pupil dilation, but a bunch of indicators of anticipating something with an emotion. And they'd flip up these pictures randomly that would just go flip, 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 right? And you just look at them and it was all randomized. So it was not decided upon, but like microseconds before a photo had even been decided upon, they would interject something that was violence, um, sexual, things that would elicit an emotion and are, were able to show that people were able to precognitively anticipate the images showing up to where they had never even been recorded in the, or determined yet by the randomization. Much in the way that when we do remote viewing with Justin and I, we won't even pick the targets until after we've done the remote viewing. So, I don't know, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I like that this, this machine gives immediate feedback, though. Like, with the remote viewing, you need someone, you need, you know, you need someone to verify what you just did, right? So yeah. It's like it's immediate, so that's even, that's pretty exciting. And then I like the, you know, this whole attention thing ties right into the sword segment, which we'll get to at the end of the show. But uh, yeah, hell yeah, Dean Radin, uh, definitely go check out the 13 Questions Dean Radin interview. Uh, it was a very interesting format, one of our shorter ones. Uh, Dean doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem like he gives a whole lot of interviews. He's a very... Uh, no, he's very strict with his time. I mean, he's a, a full-time scientist, and that is all he has ever done. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean that in the most respectful way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Good dude, for sure. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had him on 13 Questions, right? Yeah, no, I fanboyed out. 
I had no idea that you were such a fan when I when I booked him. That was awesome. Yeah, I it, he's one of those names that, you know, since I've been a little kid, you know, seeing him pop up in, you know, just the old remote viewing uh videos and the things that were going on at the Stanford Institute, you know, with Yuri Geller and all these things that yeah, he's kind of been in that that my my background vernacular and then I mean as he's continued to do his work and move more and more towards uh proving magic with science yeah it's it's really cool to be able to meet your heroes and not be disappointed yeah <laughs> yeah it's usually not a good thing to place anybody on pedestals which is something that we learned in 13 questions at least i did anyway i didn't already know it before it was a good reminder it would see there we go with the reminders again right all just one big reminder anyway what else do you got for us well, I've got two interesting things. It's now been found that human cells actually vibrate at a certain frequency. And I have a clip. Yay, more clips. All right. So this is from a very interesting YouTube channel that I follow. It's by Andro, uh, Anton Petrov. And it's all on science, usually around astronomy um, and that type of science. Uh, very, very mainstream, very, you know, anti-UFO. Uh, but I'm absolutely fascinated by following him because uh, he'll dig into all the topics that become controversies or will show the other side. And when I see something like this, um, I can see, of course, the material sciences and is being great for medicine and being able to, you know, help cure people through frequency and vibration, you know, much in the way that a cat can heal itself through purr. But I start to look at this as like, well, what about, you know, uh, chanting and singing and things of vibrations that humans could do um, that would enact these things that may be part of who we are as human beings that we just naturally do. Um, you know, and kind of taking that ultimate science of, yeah, you want a machine to heal somebody, but you know, maybe if you were just magically, you know, chanting the right spell that that frequency could actually heal somebody. So I encourage you check out his channel and subscribe. There'll be a link to this video. And here's a short clip. Researchers working on various human cells and using these micro cantilevers for slightly different purposes detected unexpected signals. Here, the vibrations were just a little bit different from what the scientists hypothesized, eventually leading the scientists to propose that maybe just maybe this is actually because the cells themselves also vibrate, changing the overall results. And so in this new study, the scientists decided to focus specifically on discovering the frequency. First, they used a tiny micro cantilever. Here, this was approximately 50 micrometers by 270 nanometers across and made out of silicon and gold. And second, they decided to pick certain human cells used previously for a lot of different research. Here, they used individual human breast cells, in this case, designed for medical studies. And by placing these cells on the micro cantilever and then varying their vibrations, they discovered that they do have a resonant frequency after all. With slightly different frequencies depending on the size of the cell. They actually analyzed frequencies between 1000 Hz and 1 MHz, 
but found specific anomalies between 10 and 30 kHz and then between 150 and 180 kHz, basically suggesting that those seem to be vibration frequencies of these very specific brass cells. And at least in theory, those smaller frequencies between 10 and 30 kHz can physically be heard by human ear. And so theoretically, instead of just looking at the cells, we can technically listen to them as well. And to add on to that, what type of industries, what type of frequencies that we could be creating, what other type of resonant vibrations might be inferred through other other frequencies, you know, reverberating, uh, you know, could this be something that, you know, uh, certain types of RF signals could um, initiate within the human? So it is absolutely fascinating, but just more to the fact that we are frequency, we are resonance, that I resonate with something, I resonate with a person, I resonate with a thought that maybe that really is everything. Everything is a resonance and you have a control of your frequency. Maybe. There's this maybe. <laughs> Everything is frequency. <laughs> it is. I believe it is. So yeah, I guess. Yeah. I think isn't that kind Again, of listen, Bill, if this is all a simulation, then it really doesn't matter what I think. Well, maybe. But if you if you're in charge of it, then it then then it kind of does. But that's true. Unless it's, unless it's a uh, co-optive, which you still are kind of an important part of. That's true. Um, yeah, this, this reminds me of the whole, uh, basis behind homeopathy, right? Isn't that about finding the, the frequency of, you know, whatever is bugging you, right? And then you match it and then you crank up the, the amplitude, right? Until it vibrates so much so far right that it breaks like it breaks it breaks apart the cell right it just yeah yeah and then when you have the idea that water is programmable with frequency then you can program water with the frequency of a medicine and have very very low uh detectable levels within the water but then you still have as the theory goes that it's just as potent because it's carrying the signal and then at the same time, when those things are being made, that it's just as important as the people that are around it, because there are certain people whom, if they're around the equipment during the production, it, the, uh, the end result will just not work. They somehow are able to negate it. Weird. Turn the placebo into a nocebo. Yeah, right. So this is this has to anything with chanting, singing, uh, talking, mm -hmm. and humming. All of this affects our vagus nerve. Yep, and that's like one of the main biggest nerves that runs throughout our entire nervous system, right? So, it, and it affects our heart, right? Our digestion, um, pretty important things that are involuntary for the most part, but. If you can affect your vagus nerve, you can reset those systems, right? Which is what Wim Hof breathing does, but minus the, there's no humming involved, which you could, you could probably, you know, add a chant or some kind of uh, weird noise to your exhale if you wanted to, to help with that. But 
yeah definitely um super cool stuff uh, yeah. i think so oh, and yeah. i also like the fact that the instrument that they used which was a little cantilever kind of like a, a diving board as it was described is made out of silicon and gold just you know one of those other like you know how complicated is it yeah it's just pieces of the earth already there assembled in a new way to make a discovery about frequency just rocks yeah yeah it's just just a little bit of gold just you know a little bit of sand you know just uh what the the streets of a uh, heaven are to be made of right <laughs> exactly uh, speaking of sound though did you hear that that new netflix movie leave the world behind actually has a track of infrasound embedded in 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 the in the file no that's interesting but i mean it could be uh it could be in there i'm postulating if somebody's got you know uh, a really nice you know seven one or more audio system so that you can actually get like a low very disturbing like when you go to a movie theater there's that type horror groan sound i don't know that you would have to okay in order for it to be detectable maybe you would need that type of system equipment right but i i think it still has an effect on your body and i only say that because yeah. well i say that because you have to be able to reproduce the sound because just because the signal's there an infrasound your tv speakers are probably not going to be doing it so it becomes one of those why would you put it in there if you know unless you have the ability to hear it so it's not you don't think the equipment has, has... well let's say let's say there was nefarious purposes behind it um the vast majority of people are never going to be able to reproduce that sound with their equipment so it wouldn't have much effect at all you'd have to be encountering people with high-end systems and again that'd be having to know what the frequency of the signal is that they're that they've embedded it versus the uh you know uh capabilities of it being reproduced by a speaker it, it you know it might be too low that it can't even be reproduced by a commercial speaker hmm Maybe I don't know the the video that I saw was some guy talking that he it was his job was to like download and splice together movies for the past know, thirty forty years or whatever and he has never seen one with more than two tracks even audio and a, a video track right but this one interesting had four of them right so I don't know what the extra one was but audio video infrasound and then there was some other weird weird thing that he's never seen before but yeah that'd be interesting to to know about. You know, I can also think of, you know, it might be something like the Matrix movies where when you're in the Matrix, every single thing has a green tinge to it. You know, there might be something where they're purposefully adding a distortion underneath everything to make it uncomfortable, make it different, uh, make it a completely different experience than you've ever had before in a movie. Yeah, I mean, and then the fact that it's not 432 hertz is just horrible to begin with, but maybe that's for another show and uh I, if we had more time i would go and dig out that video of the movie editor guy talking about it but we we've got a full segment here so we'll leave that uh on the table for now and i think you had one more story to get to go oh yeah if you want to dive into that uh 
this ties right back into actually I should have done this one first I guess it's right back into that weird sigilly thing all right are you familiar with Diana Polska no all right so she is a religious studies expert um she's done religious studies for a very long time and got really really into it and started seeing connections to uh, things like UFOs and started getting really interested in that kind of aspect of religion. And she ended up meeting with a person whom uh, worked for NASA, had been there for over 40 years, was an intern with, within NASA when he first started under Warner Von Braun and has been there through, you know, pretty much everything. Anything that's launching, you know, off the pad at the Cape, he's in the control room. Um, so this is a description by her. She was just on, uh, a little bit ago on the theories of everything, uh, podcast with Kurt Jamungle, one of my favorite, uh, shows of all time. Uh, I watch it all the time, um, uh, called toe theories of everything. Um, there will also be a description in the show notes. So I encourage you to check out this entire clip. And you'll also get to see some photos um, when you follow the link to what Diana is talking about. Um, so I'm going to leave it right there and I'm going to let the clip roll. Uh, one thing that was kind of funny about my friendship with Tyler was that he was part of space program, really integral into the space program. And he launches, you know, these rockets and works with SpaceX and that type of thing. And what I found out, which he actually did not know, and I pointed it out to him, was that the whole thing was a ritual. The whole thing got was ritualized. So they identified certain time periods astronomically when it would be beneficial to launch. And they also had, the rockets had um, Roman gods on them. And they also had um, Latin, first century Latin, not medieval Latin. It wasn't Catholic Latin. It was basically imperialistic Latin. And so, and everybody had to stay in their own space. Like there was a place where they had to stay. They wore the same clothes for every mission um, and they ate the same food. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Are you referring to a SpaceX launch? I, I missed that. Yeah, yeah. We're, well, not all SpaceX launches, just certain of them with Tyler involved. And so when he would be involved launching these satellites into space, a lot of times they'd be with SpaceX because that's who they used. Um, I that see. Was, yeah. So they would, they would go, you know, they've been doing this from, it looks like from the 1950s onward, they've been doing this ritual and they would even have like a chaplain there. And, you know, they would, it was very, very, listen, it was very ritualized. And so I noticed that and I asked him about it and I said, do you know that this is first century Latin that's written on these rockets? And he said, no, I didn't know that. He didn't even know it was Latin. And so we read them, we, I translated them all. And I said, this, wow, this says that. And I said, who up there in space is going to be reading this? Like, why would you put that on there? You know, that seems so strange. And he said, well, I imagine it's for them. And I said, <laughs> okay, who's, who are they, you know? And so he did, he just didn't say anything. I thought that was really, really interesting. And I'm going to pull up just to show you, because this will be in the show notes. This is, that was a very short clip. Um, so I'm just uh, putting this in here for you, Bill. I'm also going to send you the link so that the listeners can look. 
Uh, but we're looking at what looks like a giant Pegasus. There's another one which has a uh, a man hammering down on top of, um, you know, like forging something. Uh, it's got that uh, Latin written all around it. This is on a uh, a rocket as well. We've got another one here that has three serpents. Uh, looks like two serpents on the side with the center one being a like cobra with its hood out wrapped in entangling the earth. And that's a mission patch, which would have also been painted on the vehicle. And then we have another multitude of mission patches here. Octopus reaching mm -hmm. around the earth, uh, you know, like a sorceress standing with a uh, like a a trident with some sort of electric electricity coming out of her uh, U.S. Space Force logo with a gray alien head on the top of it. Classified flight tests that have what looks like a, a symbol on top of a B-52 with an alien wrapping its hands around it. Like these are incredibly weird things that are part of our space program that we don't get to see. And it's all the behind the scenes stuff, you know, uh, women with a partial mask that looks like an owl carrying a, sh a shield in a spear over the earth. And again, all of these with this very old Latin phrasing written on there. And then you have somebody who's been there for a long time, been there since the beginning, uh, knows all of the secret programs. Uh, saying it's for them. Like, what does that even mean? Does this really lead back to that idea that in uh, like Arthur C. Clarke or, uh, you know, the, the Stanley Kubrick 2001, where we went to the moon, we found something, you know, and we were told you can't go here. You're not allowed. Yeah, dude. There's people people on the moon there be dragons there so yeah if you're at all interested in space travel rituals uh and that very deep esoteric side of science that nobody wants to talk about the fact that our our you know space program warner von braun a nazi you know known for hanging uh the slowest workers at his factories uh, not a good person and they were doing all these crazy rituals to get into space so that that one patch that had the green wizard on it and it said something about the green door that is something that azazel discusses quite frequently and it ties in very well to our class on the green wizard hiram if you can find that image again maybe point it out to you it's just to the bottom right of the words of the patch, a lifetime of silence behind the green door. So apparently, so to, to I guess we'll jump into the class from here. Damn, that's today. a nice little connection. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so the, uh, the four factions, the one that we're going to discuss today is the green faction. There are also blue, gold, and red. The reds would be the parasites, the ones that are nefarious, right? Uh, we all kind of know who they are. Uh, the other three, green, gold, and blue, kind of being on 
their own team, but they collaborate with each other. It's kind of an, it's a very interesting schema that is put forth in the Azazel Telegram. But the uh, he always talks about a green door and uh, a blue door, and that these are essentially uh, pathways to uh, black uh, black world space projects, right? To unacknowledged special access projects. You can be recruited into these programs and actually go off world, right? So there are uh, he that's does... interesting it, it reminds me a bit of uh david lynch and the like the white lodge and the black lodge i'm not super familiar with that but ah yeah yeah it's uh well i'd like to describe david lynch but it's impossible <laughs> we'll do but it check out twin peaks highly recommend the series i never finished watching that by the way but Ellie couldn't handle it. It was too suspenseful. And I don't blame her. It was kind of creepy. Um, Just wait until you get to the new ones. uh, Give me my screen back, and then we can move on to the... (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. um, Just a brief explanation of what the the factions are. These have been around for, for forever, basically. And... Uh, what exactly does the green faction deal with, right? Well, that would be ter- uh, warfare, like surface warfare and subterranean warfare, which, you know, if you've been noticing all the manhole fires and explosions going around, that might be catching your attention a little bit. There was a there was a, some 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 tunnels discovered under the under the Shabbat in New York recently, so that's very. Uh, pretty disturbing there but uh we'll leave that for we'll leave that for now um so this this week's class is going to be the last profile in wizardry we do for a while is green wizard sir hiram stephen maxim and i'm going to be reading from alchitron.com and then we will look at the actual text in well this is a article provided by azazel and then we're going to go look at the actual text in telegram that azazel put together for the class because he talks a lot about machine guns and there's some pictures in there that we can look at and then uh, there is a tie-in to possibly him leading a double life and having trans uh, teleportation technology and then uh we have time maybe we'll get into um uh, marvin the martian there's a marvin the martian tie in here of all things so uh, i'm still trying to get over the fact that there's such a great synchronicity with me sharing the video or the the image with the the green wizard it it, it, it is it's i've kind of um come to expect it now when we do these shows that it always seems to be like we don't even have to worry about segues they just make themselves well, and then, like, what are what are we doing here, Bill? When this is what um, science, you know, reaching space, creating that next level of exploration, is doing. Like, they've got to be two sides of the same coin. Oh yeah, hundred percent. All right, so, we own time, traveling, surfing time waves, something like that. Something cool, some 
spiffy slogan right here. Um, all right, so I guess I won't share my screen yet just yet, but a uh, link will be in the show notes. Here we go. Just some general, uh, basic, uh, normie level information about Sir Hiram Stevens Maxim to begin with. He was an American-born inventor who moved from the United States to the UK at the age of 41. He remained an American citizen until he became a naturalized British subject in 1900. He was the inventor of the Maxim gun, the first portable fully automatic machine gun, and held patents on mechanical devices such as a mousetrap, hair curling irons, and steam pumps. He laid claim to inventing the light bulb and even experimented with powered flight, but his large aircraft designs were never successful. However, his captive flying machine, Amusement Ride, designed as a means by which to fund his research while generating public interest in flight, was highly successful. So yeah, he made a roller coaster, essentially. Uh, birth and early life. Maxim was born in Sangerville, Maine, in the United States in 1840. He became an apprentice coach builder at the age of 14, and 10 years later took up a job at the machine works of his uncle, Levi Stevens, in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. He subsequently worked as an instrument maker and as a draftsman. His early jobs in these arenas led him to be often disappointed with workers when he ran his own companies later on in life. Family. His brother, Hudson Maxim, was also a military inventor specializing in explosives. They worked quite closely together until later in life, when there was a disagreement on a patent for smokeless powder. The patent, Hiram claimed, had been issued under the name H. Maxim, and that was and that because of this, his brother was able to stake a claim as the powder being his own. Not the first time that he's going to run into patent problems in his life. Hudson was a skilled and knowledgeable man and sold arms in the U.S., while Hiram worked mainly in Europe. Hudson had success in the United States, which caused jealousy from Hiram. He lamented having a double of himself running around the States. The jealousy and disagreements caused a rift between the brothers that would last the rest of their lives. Kind of sad. Hiram Maxim married his first wife, Jane Budden, in 1876. Their children were Hiram Percy Maxim, Florence Maxim, who married George Albert Cutter, and Adeline Maxim, who married Eldon Jobert. Hiram Percy Maxim followed in his father's and uncle's footsteps and became a mechanical engineer and weapons designer as well. But he is perhaps best known for his early amateur radio experiments and for founding the American Radio Relay League. His invention of the Maxim silencer for noise suppression came too late to save his father's hearing. Hiram Percy later wrote a biography of his father entitled A Genius in the Family, containing about 60 anecdotes and anecdotes of Hiram Percy's experiences with his father throughout his early life, until about 12. Most of these short stories were entertaining. They gave 
They give a reader an insider's, a child's view of the man's personal and family life. A film based on his son's book was released in 1946 called So Goes My Love, starring Don Amenche and Myra Loy. He married his second wife, Sarah, daughter of Charles Hayes of Boston in 1881. It is not clear if he was legally divorced from his first wife at this time. A woman called Helen Layton brought a case against Maxim, claiming that he had married her in 1878 and that he was knowingly committing bigamy with his current wife, Jane Budden. She claimed further that Maxim had fathered a child and named a child named Romaine by her with her. The case was eventually dropped, settled for under a thousand dollars. The original amount asked for was twenty-five thousand, and Maxim put the near public humiliation and case behind him. Later in life, he left four thousand pounds sterling to a Romaine Denison, perhaps the child Leighton claimed he had fathered. Immigration and knighthood. In eighteen eighty-one, Maxim arrived in England to reorganize the London offices of the U.S. Electric Lighting Company. By 1900, his visits back to, back to the United States became in, infrequent, and in that same year, Maxim became a naturalized British subject. In the following year, Queen Victoria bestowed a knighthood on him. Queen Victoria died on 22 January 1901, and the actual knighting was done by Maxim's friend in New King, Edward VIII. Profession. Maxim was a chevalier of the Re Legion of Honor, a civil, mechanical, and electrical engineer, member of the London Chamber of Commerce, member of the Royal Institution, member of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, member of the British Empire League, interesting, and member of the Royal Society of Arts. Also interesting. Inventions. Maxim, a longtime sufferer of bronchitis, patented and manufactured a pocket menthol inhaler and a larger pipe of peace, a steam inhaler using pine vapor that he claimed could relieve asthma, tinnitus, hay fever, and catarrh. C-A-T-A-R-R-H. I don't know what that is. After being criticized for applying his patents, or I'm sorry, after being criticized for applying his talents to quackery, he, pro he protested that it will be seen that it is a very credible thing to invent a killing machine and nothing less than a disgrace to invent an apparatus to prevent human suffering. There's a quote from him. He also invented a curling iron, an apparatus for demagnetizing watches, elect, uh, magnetoelectric machines, devices to prevent the rolling of ships, eyelets and riveting machines, aircraft artillery, an aerial torpedo gun, coffee substitutes, and various oil, steam, and gas engines. Love that coffee substitute thing thrown in there. Good for him. Uh, a large furniture factory had repeatedly burned down, and Maxim was consulted on how to prevent a recurrence. As a result, Maxim invented the first automatic fire sprinkler. 
it would douse the areas that were on fire and it would report the fire to the fire station. Maxim was unable to sell the idea elsewhere, but when the patent expired, the idea was used. Wah, wah. I shouldn't laugh. You guys, bad luck. Um, Maxim developed and installed... You didn't just laugh. You added cartoon sound effects. I like it. <laughs> it's like Mario dying. That's what happens when I was, you know, we were watching uh, Marvin the Martian clips last night trying to do research for the show. Uh, uh, Maxim developed and installed the first electric lights in the New York City building, the Equitable Life Building, at 120 Broadway in the late 1870s. However, he was involved in several lengthy patent disputes with Thomas Edison over his claims to the light bulb. One of these actions regarded the incandescent light bulb, for which Maxim claimed that Edison was credited by means of his better understanding of patenting law. Maxim claimed that an employee of his had falsely patented the invention under his own name and that Edison proved the employee's claim to be false, knowing that patent law would mean the invention would become public property, allowing Edison to manufacture the light bulb without crediting, crediting Maxim as the true inventor. What a dick. <laughs> Remember learning about this guy in high school, or not in high school, but, you know, going through school, and it's just so much, so much praise for Thomas Edison. He's so great, and he invented all these things. And the more that we learn about him, the more it seems like it's all. And what's crazier is that those systems are still here today. You know, alternating current, you know, incandescent bulbs, although they're being phased out, like, uh, there's a very long tail connected, connected to that. Like, the Diesel Brothers and, uh, you know, the oil industry, these are things that, yeah, it's a couple of people doing some pretty terrible things, co-opting, making a lot of money, but then generations down the line, like it's a machine that's been created that keeps going. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. But speaking of machines, we're, we're finally getting into the gun part. So the Maxim gun, uh, he, Maxim was reported to have said, Quote, in 1882, I was in Vienna, where I met an American whom I had known in the States. He said, hang your chemistry and electricity. If you want to make a pile of money, invent something that will help these Europeans to cut each other's throats with greater facility. End quote. As a child, Maxim had been knocked over by a rifle's recoil and this inspired him to use that recoil force to automatically operate a gun. Between 1883 and 1885, Maxim patented gas, recoil, and blowback methods of operation. After moving to England, he settled in a large house formerly owned by Lord Thurlow in West Norwood, where he developed his design for an automatic weapon. Using an action that would close the breech and compress a spring, by storing the recoil energy released by a shot to prepare the gun for its next firing. He thoughtfully ran announcements in the local press warning that he would be experimenting with the gun in his garden and that neighbors should keep their windows open to avoid the danger of broken glass. 
Maxim Fadick. Maxim founded an arms company with financial backing from Edward Vickers to produce his machine gun in Crayford, Kent, which later merged with Nordenfeldt. Subsequently, part of the Barrow Shipping Shipbuilding Company, B A R R O W, Barrow Shipbuilding Company, uh, Purchased by Vickers Corporation in 1897, formed Vickers, Sun, and Maxim. Their improved development of the Maxim gun design, the Vickers machine gun, after Maxim's resignation from the board in 1911, on his 71st, 71st birthday, was the standard British machine gun for many years. With arm sales led by Basil Zarahoff, variants of the Maxim gun, gun were brought, bought and ex- used extensively by both sides during World War I. In his later years, Maxim became profoundly deaf, as his hearing had been damaged by years of exposure to the noise of his guns. Imagine that. Ear protection is important. Should have left his windows closed. <laughs> Hadn't invented that silencer yet. You can't, I don't think you can put one on a machine gun, though. Hey, Cam. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you put a silencer on, though, you are diminishing its effectiveness. But yeah, absolutely, you can. They have like uh, muzzle reducers that they put on machine guns and stuff, so it reduces the flash as well. So, um, moving on from the guns for now, we're going to talk about flying machines. Maxim's father had earlier conceived of a helicopter powered by two counter-rotating rotors, but was unable to find a powerful enough engine to build it. Hiram first sketched out plans for a helicopter in 1872, but when he built his first flying machine, he chose to use wings. Before starting design work, he carried out a series of experiments on aerofoil sections and propeller design, at first using a wind tunnel and later building a whirling arm test rig. Construction started in 1889 of a 40-foot-long craft with a 110-foot wingspan that weighed three and a half tons, powered by two lightweight Napath-fired 360-horsepower steam engines driving two 17-foot-diameter laminated pine propellers. Conceived of as a test rig, the machine ran on a 1,800-foot length of rail track, which Maxim laid down for the purpose at his home in Bexley. The initial intention was to prevent the machine from lifting off by using heavy cast-iron wheels, but after initial trials, Maxim concluded that, his, that this would not suffice, and so the machine was fitted with four wheeled outriggers, which were restrained by wooden rails, 13 feet outside the central track. In trials in 1894, the machine lifted and was prevented from rising by the outriggers. During its test run, all the outriggers were engaged, showing that it had developed enough lift to take off, but in so doing, it pulled up the track. The tethered flight was aborted in time to prevent disaster. Maxim subsequently abandoned work on it, but his experience uh, to work on to oh he abandoned that work on that to put his experience to building fairground rides 
Uh, he subsequently noted that a feasible flying machine would need better power-to-weight engines, such as a petrol combustion engine. Captive flying machines. Uh, to fund his research into, into flight and to bring attention to the notion of flight, Maxim designed and built an amusement ride for the Earl's Court ex Exhibition in 1904. The ride was based on a test rig he had devised for his research and consisted of a large spinning frame from which cars hung captive. As the machine spun, the cars would be swung outward through the, out, through the air, simulating flight. The ride was similar to the later circle swing ride made popular by the US in the US by renowned roller coaster designer Harry Traber. Maxim originally intended to use primitive airfoils and wings to allow riders to control their flight, but this was outlawed as unsafe. As a result, Maxim quickly lost interest in the project, declaring the adapted ride as, quote, simply a glorified merry-go-round. Nevertheless, his company built several more rides of various sizes at the Crystal Palace and various seaside resorts, including Southport, New Brighton, and Blackpool, all of which opened in 1904. Originally, Maxim had intended to build only two, but a lengthy breakdown on the original Earl's Count Court ride forced him to build more to make the venture profitable. He had plans for further variations of the ride, but his disillusionment with the amusement business meant that they were never realized. Although he expressed regrets about the whole project, the rides were held in high regard within the amusement industry, and the Blackpool ride still operates to this day as part, as, as part of what is now known as Pleasure Beach Amusement Park. Along with the same park's similarly historic river caves, it is the oldest operating amusement ride in Europe. The Flying Machines has the distinction of being virtually unchanged from Maxim's original design. The Blackpool ride's name is now usually abbreviated to the Flying Machine or Flying Machines, although the full name, Sir Hiram Maxim's, Sir Hiram Maxim's Captive Flying Machines, is given at the ride entrance. In 2001, Disney California Adventure Park opened, featuring Golden Zephyr, a modern-day recreation of the Traver version of the ride. The ride itself is much smaller than the Blackpool version, with cars swinging out at a much smaller angle. Nevertheless, engineers from Disney visited Blackpool to inspect the Maxim ride to help, their, to help design their ride. And the last little bit here, um, in 1911, Maxim headed the newly formed Graham White Blair Riot and Maxim Company, founded with the two aviators and 200,000 pounds of capital. He had hoped to produce military aircraft capable of scouting or dropping a 500-pound bomb, but his failing health and financial difficulties with his other enterprises restricted his ability to develop this enterprise before his death. And then lastly is this very part at the, this part at the very end about philosophy and religion. In addition to his civil, mechanical, and electrical endeavors, Maxim compiled and edited a book he called Li Hong Chang's Scrapbook. 
This book was addressed to Li Hong Cheng, also spelled Li Hong Zheng and Li Hong Cheng, and endeavored to address a belief that, quote, the Chinese were generally puzzled as to how it was possible for people who are able to build locomotives and steamships to have a religion based on a belief in devils, ghosts, impossible miracles, and all the other absurdities and impossibilities peculiar to the religion taught by the missionaries. Maxim held European missionaries in China in low esteem, for reasons described in the scrapbook. He stated, quote, It was my aim in compiling for His Excellency a scrapbook with explanatory notes to put the Chinaman right in his respect. I wished to show that we were not all fools. His scrapbook comprised some 400 pages, pages with 42 illustrations, presenting his views on the nature of Christianity, Christianity in China, and his conclusions on subjects including miracles, spirituality, faith, and the influence of the Bible on the civilization of Europe and America. He concluded his, his scrapbook with an appeal to the missionaries and his thoughts on the reason for the failure of what he described as missionary propaganda in China. On his religious views, Maxim was an atheist. Uh, he died in London, uh, 24 November 1916, and is buried uh, with his wife and grandson. So, pretty, uh, pretty interesting dude, I'd say, that we've learned about so far. Now, to share screen, I guess this is a, for anybody watching on YouTube, you're getting bonus material. All right. Hopping on over to what um, Azazel actually has prepared. Let me just clean this up real quick. All right. Got a little picture of him here. And uh, Azazel doesn't have a whole lot uh, written, so I'll just, I'll just read it, even though it might be kind of repetitive. Uh, in 1884... Ira Maxim built the first effective machine gun, which revolutionized warfare. Um, born in 1840 in Maine, he was apprenticed at 14 to be a carriage maker. Uh, while learning the trade, he exhibited a knack or invention, designing a mouse trap that automatically reset and rid local mills of rodents. He obtained the first of his 271 patents at age 26 for a curling iron. By his 30s, Maxim was, be, uh, was becoming chief engineer of the United States Electric Lighting Company in New York, for which he introduced carbon filaments for electric light bulbs. At the 1881 Paris Exhibition, he demonstrated an electric pressure regulator and was awarded the Legion d'Honneur. That same year, he arrived in England to reorganize the London offices of U.S. Electric Lighting Company. There, he began work on his machine gun. You can see some more pictures here of what this thing looked like. If you're watching on YouTube, a lot more pictures to come. So maybe uh, maybe stop listening and go, go to YouTube real quick, maybe. I don't know. I want to. 
Um, at the Paris exhibition in 1881, a man told Maxim that if he wanted to make a fortune, he should invent a machine uh, that would help these Europeans uh, kill each other. Maxim did and sold his machine guns to European countries on the eve of World War I, changing the nature of combat forever. So this is where we get into a little bit of, of uh, warfare, right? Sub subterranean warfare and, and uh, you know, surface warfare. Uh, later, later in life, uh, but, but, but first, quickly, uh, Maxim turned his attention from warfare to flight, building a steam uh, engine-powered airplane that briefly rose from the ground while he was unable to achieve sustained flight. His amusement ride, the captive flying machine, became a staple of the British fairgrounds. Um, he died April 24, 1916, which is only days before the Battle of the Somme, where over one million soldiers fell in four months of machine gun warfare. And uh, Azazel does talk about the Pice of Peep, which is that inhaler that he invented that's supposed to help with respiratory illnesses. There's a picture of it here. If you're on YouTube, it's a precursor to the modern day inhaler. Uh, it was seen as crackery, but eventually became very popular in hundreds of thousands were sold. I love it. It was called the the, the pipe of peace. I, the pipe of peace. Sir Hiram Maxim's pipe of peace and Maxim inhaler. Nice. Right, it, it kind of looks like a little crack pipe that you'd see uh, <laughs> around today. Right, it would look uh, at home in Hunter Biden's pocket for sure. So, uh, perfect for Parmesan cheese. Uh, so yeah, the, back to the warfare, war fighting. Uh, the Maxim silencer was the first commercially successful firearm sound suppressor developed by Hiram Percy Maxim, the son of the guy that we're talking about. Uh, who invented the machine gun, right? So his son invented the, the, the uh, suppressor. Uh, he did so in tandem with the automobile muffler in the early 1900s. It was patented in 1909. The Maxim design was different than modern suppressors as it, as it used curved veins to force muzzle gases to spin in little vortices inside the device while they cooled thus reducing their pressure. This design is expensive to manufacture and causes the silencer to heat up quickly. Yeah, and you also lose muzzle velocity. Yeah. Uh, modern designs use baffles to slow down gases without absorbing too much heat. And here's an example of a Russian M1910 Maxim machine gun in a 762 by 54 millimeter round uh the middle leader it's it's the caliber of rounds it shoots and it served throughout world war one the russian revolution the russian civil war conflicts in the 1920s and 30s winter war and even world two a simple and reliable design it was very effective when properly in placed its primary drawback was its weight which prevented the gun crews from keeping up with an assault and apparently that stupidly thin piece of metal that's just Swiss cheesed that Dude. protects the, the gunner. That next, yeah, this next photo here. 
Yeah, that's gnarly. 16 hits to the gun shield and water jacket on this Soviet M1910 Maxim, indicating the fight that the, grung, that the gun crew put up. Do you have a favorite World War One or World War Two machine gun? No, that that is it. Yeah, for dude, for real. Wait until you see what four of them together looks like. Uh, so it, it 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 absolutely changed history. It did. You know, one of those definingly overpowering pieces of equipment. It's you know coming up with the rock, then coming up with the arrow, then coming up with the gun, and then the machine gun. Like, bring a gun to a machine gun fight. You know. Yeah, for real. It, this is what caused uh, soldiers to uh, subterranean warfare. This is the this is the 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 reason why people started having to dig tunnels to blow each other up in World War One because it's just it completely took the charge across the land and get the enemy out, off off the table because everybody's dead now thanks thanks to the machine gun. And as you can see here in this next picture, uh, he cut down a tree. It was an eighteen inch white ash tree to demonstrate his gun to his excellent his excellency general li hong chang of the quinn dynasty in china <laughs> what's that no i'm just imagining like uh you know when the trees fight back you know if it's like tolkien or uh trees that end night Shyamalan movie that uh yeah we, we will be able to destroy the trees we can totally do another class on sentient trees. That is something that Azazel talks about. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. But uh, the uh, his his excellency general was a major military leader and reformer in China, and his name is worth a web search. The other two European men picture in this picture here are Sigmund Lowell and Sir Albert Vickers. Those names should all ring familiar. Sigmund Lowell owned BWM Deutsche Waffen and see if I can get this Deutsche Waffen und Munitionsfabriken, and his surname appeared on many guns you've heard of. Sir Albert Vickers is of the Vickers gun, which is a modified Maxim gun design. Vickers, in fact, bought the entire Maxim machine gun company. Suffice to say, all present were impressed. If we're impressed by what they saw happen to the tree. Yeah. And this is a uh, 5.7 centimeter Maxim Nordenfelt Fortress Cannon, which saw service from 1880 into the end of World War One. So it's a, a giant. Those machine guns are terrifying, too. And they pepper, meaning, you know, they're not super accurate, but. That makes them even more terrifying. They can just blanket. Yeah. Cluster bombs almost. Uh, let's face it, you can never have too many Maxim guns. Uh, what were they truly trying to hit besides Zeppelins? Here's a picture of an, you know, an AA gun. Oh They're... yeah, but that would be great against uh, low-flying flying aircraft. Like, really great. Because all you have to do is, you know, get a, you know, get a couple bullets in the right spot which is really hard to do but now you know you've got like four feet mm. of spray right yeah yeah true uh, this next picture is the number 47 of the original maxim nordenfeld 50 gun contract for argentina in 1895 
All roads lead back to Argentina. Isn't there some shit going on in Argentina right now? I think there is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the country's being taken over by criminals. Why would Argentina need such heavy weaponry? Question mark. Question mark. He asks, as Azel does. There is no, that's also uh, another mini class that we can do on the, the Argentina, which we kind of tried to touch on in the Black Goo episode that got mysteriously not recorded. Well, not mysteriously, but and, and under weird circumstances, right? You so, have black goo in your brain that is controlling you, Bill. Could be. Could be. Possible. You gave it to Ellie. No, let's not go that far. You gave her the black goo. Maybe she gave it to me. Anyway. Uh, this is a picture of the Colt Maxim model 1904. Did you know? The first machine gun officially adopted by the U.S. military was the Colt Maxim model 1904. Originally produced by Vickers Sons, Vickers Sons and Maxim, uh, production was later taken over by Colt with the first American guns produced in 1908. While reliable, the Colt Maxim M1904 had the dubious distinction of being the heaviest of its breed. With water, the whole affair weighed in at a whopping 145 pounds. Only 287 of this model were, were ever produced, and today only 10 are registered, making it the rarest of the U.S. machine guns. Here's another one. This one is a piece that I would love to have for my collection. It says, says Azazel. A uh, 7.5 by 55 millimeter Swiss Maxim model 1911 water-cooled machine gun, complete with accessories including the Fortress scope for engaging targets at extended range. For the first time in history, humanity had the monopoly on violence to be able to challenge subterranean societies. Hashtag MOV. Monopoly on violence. Uh, so, speaking of subterranean societies, this is where the silencer comes back into play. Uh, certain situations on the surface and beneath require a more lighter and quieter touch. The original Maxim silencer suppressors are referred to as silencers in the NFA because a trade name, not because they truly silence weapons. These were a mail-order item, as well as being available at hardware and department stores. If you think the design resembles an, auto, an automotive muffler, that's because they're modeled after one another. Some hybrids entities are entirely blind and have never seen the light of day. Hearing echolocation, on the other hand, is excellent. So. The Maxim Silencer was standard issue as subterranean troops explored the deeper depths. As Azel points out, as he has stated many times, that all the causes of wars in the white world, bubble world, clown world, are complete and utter lies. You need a dumb majority to fight each other. Uh, that's why the real shadow war happens behind the scenes. Now, you might be wondering what made this gun go away. Well, we're about to find out why 
water-cooled machine guns went away. You can see this picture here of uh, a battalion of soldiers, a squad of, of soldiers trying to drag this thing up a giant rock, and it does not look very easy. Um, the image is of Soviet troops hauling a PM-1910 Maxim machine gun on a wheeled mount up the side of a mountain. Uh, illustrates why water-cooled machine guns were replaced by lighter air-cooled models. In simplest terms, the gun teams were often uh, un un unable to keep up with advancing infantry and thus were not there to support them when needed most. This was a chronic problem in Soviet after-action reports. Uh, the weight of the gun, mount, water, and ammo simply was so heavy the gun teams could not keep up. In time, this led to them being replaced by lighter and more versatile air-cooled models with quick-change barrels, which could fill their role more effectively. There is a uh, YouTube video of this gun popping off some rounds provided here in Telegram if you want to go dig that out and look at it. So this is uh, this next picture is the Quad Maxim guns. That is the most badass looking gun ever made. Doesn't it look like it? Like that is steampunk Terminator coming to mow down an army. For real. Uh, so the picture is of the business end of a Soviet uh, quadruple M1910 slash 31 Maxim gun for anti-aircraft use. The caliber is the tried and true, tried and true 7.62 by 54. Uh, with each gun firing at a cyclic rate of 600 rounds per minute, the whole rig was capable of putting out 2,400 rounds per minute. As they are water-cooled, this rate of fire could actually be sustained. While intended for use against low-flying aircraft, this configuration would have been devastating if employed against massed infantry. The M1910 Maxim remained in production until 1954. 1945, and saw combat throughout both world wars. Uh, the quad mount here was developed between the world wars. All right. So, now... You know what's crazy, Bill? What's that? That really wasn't that long ago. No. No. Because I'm thinking about this, like, the time between when that was stopped being manufactured to when I was born, right, is the same amount of time as when I was born to mean right now. Is but a blink of the eye. Exactly. Like, my experience in my life thus far is how far away it was from when I was born. And we're looking at these old black and white photos, you know, pre-Gatling guns, still using water-cooled. Right. Uh, we really have come a long way. <laughs> As we sit here in our studios. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty, uh, yeah. Invention, innovation, imagination really is what, is what this boils down to. He, he had to imagine it first and then he manifested it. So there's two ways to look at the world. And one of them that this really is magic. You can wave a wand around in a magical way, or you can wave your hands around and process the earth and then manipulate it so that all you need to do 
is move your finger and you can shoot an airplane out of the sky. Like it is magic. Seems like magic if you don't understand the technology, right? Right. Like what is magic? I'm going to conjure the earth and, you know, boom, I'm going to destroy you. Okay. That's exactly what you did. That was a very complicated waving of your hands and moving and manipulating. But ultimately, you know, it's just human beings going through certain motions. And then this piece of technology is there and it changes the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, there's a clip on the screen right now of this thing in action as a anti-aircraft gun. Looks pretty, pretty formidable. Yeah. Just look at the recoil on that thing. Mm -hmm. That's why you need so many rounds. So now that we have reached the interesting Black Project's career of Hiram Maxim's life, this is the uh, the uh, alleged, supposed, double double identity, uh, fiction or reality, the mystery of the vanishing gun inventor. So there are a few. Um, maybe we'll get to them here in a second. I'll just read what Azazel has. There are uh, two other articles provided as additional sources. One is a BBC article about this uh, this incident i guess we'll we'll say it um, that i'm about to read about so this guy other guy possibly the same guy <laughs> named william cantello and his odd inventions we're going to talk about this first him so what this guy william cantello claimed he was born around 1838 in the isle of Wight, so over in the uk he first came to notice as an as an advanced engineer who developed many strange and unidentified objects around the 1870s. By this time, he owned a curiosity shop on French Street in Southampton. At that time, he was also the landlord of the Old Tower Inn. Beneath the inn, beneath the pub, was a tunnel where Cantello spent much of his time turning it into an underground workshop. Visitors to the workshop made claims of seeing strange light machines, humming globes, and odd weapons. It is also said that Cantello would often enter the tunnel and not be seen again for days, or even weeks on end. Cantello used the tunnel underneath the old tower inn for his experiments and was later joined by his two sons, both engineers themselves. Uh, locals reported hearing noises coming from the vicinity, but the family kept their work a closely guarded secret. In early 1880, Cantello announced that he had developed a groundbreaking machine gun. Now for the strange disappearance. Accounts differ regarding the actual event of Cantello's disappearance late in 1880. Some reports say that he went for an extended holiday on his own as a reward for his hard work, but when, uh, but, but he never came back, right? He never returned. Others claimed he was last seen entering his tunnel and vanished in a puff of smoke and strange lights. Hiram Maxim, question mark? Cantello's two sons happened across a photograph of Maxim whose similarity to their own father 
led them to believe that he was still alive and had assumed a new identity. Descriptions of the gun also sounded similar to the one they had worked on, and they set out to investigate. So they hired this private, this private investigator. And uh, so the sons tried to challenge Maxim, but he wanted nothing to do with him, claiming by letter that he was from America and not the Isle of Wight. This only led the sons to believe Maxim was in fact their father, as nobody outside the immediate family knew they originated from the Isle of Wight. He refused to meet the boys. Teleportation. With good evidence to support Maxim's previous life in the USA, along with his papers claiming that he had developed a way to transport himself from one place to another, the sons believed their father had been living a double life and teleporting himself backwards and forwards. So, just uh, pull up one of these articles here real quick about the mystery of the vanishing gun inventor. Uh, links will be included in the show notes. Uh, this one website is actually in French, so I had to have Google translate it uh, for me. And I just wanted to read the description of Cantello's uh, workshop. It says that uh, the few visitors who had access to his laboratory said that inside one could see all kinds of strange machines. Some emitted lights. Others looked like strange orbs that buzzed and sparked. We could also see what looked like weapons, but in appearance and functioning seemed completely unknown to the people who were able to look at them. All these machines seemed to come from elsewhere, elsewhere, and their technology gave the impression of coming from elsewhere. Uh, and then just to continue with this article, because it's pretty, it's pretty short. Uh, his two sons, also engineers, regularly came to provide him with help. The neighborhood said that strange sounds were regularly heard coming from the basement of the tavern. William went to his laboratory for, for whole days and nights. He didn't tell anyone what type of experiment he was conducting. Finally, in 1880, he announced that he had invented a new weapon for the battlefield. He presented a sort of weapon resembling a multi-barreled machine gun. Towards the end of the year, he disappeared. At first, it was thought he'd gone on vacation, but he had left no trace. He had moved large sums of money before disappearing, and rumors began that he was last seen entering his laboratory and disappeared through smoke and rays of light. Uh, his family began searching in vain. Finally, they conducted a, contacted a uh, private detective, and he claimed to have found his trace in America, but under a different identity right um, indeed in 1881 a certain Hiram Maxim suddenly appeared he arrived in England with many mysterious inventions among these inventions was a machine gun of a type still completely unknown he published several discoveries in the registers of inventions in addition to these devices he claimed to have invented a kind of machine capable of teleporting matter uh, the two sons noticed Hiram's resemblance to their father when they saw a photograph provided by the private detective, and we know that Hiram refused uh, to meet the two men, claiming to be American, and that he had nothing to do with the Cantello family. 
when Hiram Maxim presented his machine gun, it was noticed that it looked exactly like William Cantello's. Unfortunately, no one's been able to prove that it was one and the same person. So this is really a, uh, still a mystery. And uh, just looking at this ABC article, uh, what happened to William Cantello? Uh, what we know of his story originates from a column in a local newspaper in 1930s when various witnesses were still alive. The article contains a photograph of Cantello and Maxim, and Cantello look uncannily similar. Maybe I'll, I'll have to change my screen here so you can see this, Adam. This is uh, the BBC article. Here's the pictures of the two gentlemen side by side. Um, when Cantello, yeah, so... When Cantello's sons saw a photo of Maxim in a newspaper, they were amazed. It was the image of their missing father. They tracked him down at Waterloo Station and shouted father at him. As they told it, they tried to approach him, but his train pulled away. Uh, Cantello, though, seems to have vanished off the face of the earth. His family engaged a private detective to look for him, uh, but found in, who was supposedly traced him to America, but then the trail went cold. A large sum of money was withdrawn from his bank account, but the bank in question long ago ceased to exist, and the records were lost. Um, and then to complicate things, according to the BBC, both Cantello and Maxim had very large Victorian beards. Uh, the late Victorian era was not kind to the art of facial recognition, since most males over 30 sported exuberant facial hair and all tend to look like a cross between Charles Darwin and a stern Santa. It seems likely, however, that the newspaper photograph captioned as Cantello is, in fact, Maxim. It doesn't, however, explain what happened to the vanishing gun maker. So, there's a little, uh, little bit of mystery there. What do you think, Adam? Does this, uh, this guy have invented a teleportation machine and have two families on different sides of the Atlantic? Possibly, but at the same time, I also kind of go to those weird synchronicities of that whole, like, uh, Lincoln-Kennedy uh, type of connection or, you know, flight being created at the same time or, you know, old photos of Nicolas Cage in the, the, the Wild Wild West that, you know, as we build technologies like photos, we'll probably start to realize that there's a lot more cyclical repetition even in how people look and in flavors of lives and you know certain people of certain distinctive looks may have certain you know characteristics and who knows if that's got a quantum reality that's actually related to you know like past lives and spirituality you know if this thing never ends and we're always part of it you know that idea that the moment is always now may be true right that makes kind of being it would i mean okay so when you're you're dead like you're 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 not in the here and now and that seems kind of boring because you can't i mean you can't, it's just a random thought i had i was just talking to somebody about this at work that um somebody that i work with that 
it's fascinating when you think about something like um salvia uh you know or like sage that when people smoke it of certain strains that they have an incredible experience and they will go and you know have like decades of their lives in which they live in another place they have a family and then all of a sudden they're ripped out of that experience and pulled back and it was the experience of the drug but what if that's more telling to the experience of life that uh maybe that moment that you're being snapped out of is the moment that you are in now yeah yeah that reminds me of the you die at the end of a when die in a dream and you wake up you know i'm not saying that it is but it makes me think right yeah but it could just be a matter of a perception of time right and well, and you know, not not to poo poo on it, but when I said like you know, if it's all simulation, it doesn't matter. You know, does it matter if the Earth is flat if it's a simulation? Well, I guess it does in the perspective of Neo in the Matrix, but there's still an underpinning of experience that is our reality, and maybe that's all it is. Maybe the answer to everything is just enjoy the ride. Right? Don't take things so seriously, maybe. Um. That that reminds me, I was watching the Men in Black movies when I was visiting my parents recently, and you know that scene at the end where Kay opens up the locker, mm-hmm. and it just turns out that it's a locker in a giant room full of other lockers, and uh, there's giant aliens walking around in this giant room, and our universe is just this little one locker on on a wall of lockers to these aliens. Which in turn, you know, there was a, that small universe inside the locker at Central Station where he had to go, Agent K had to go get his watch back. And was exactly. Features in there, yeah. And then, you know, tie that, go to the third movie in which there's an infidecible number of existences and realities that are happening, will happen, could happen all at once. And then tie all of that together. And that is the mystery of reality. That's what makes it so fun, right? Hell yeah. Okay, so to close up on Hiram Maxim real quickly, we'll touch on uh, the last part of the Zazel class has to deal with Thomas Edison. So uh, Maxim developed and installed, as we know, the first electric lights in a New York City building, the Equitable Life Building, at 120 Broadway in the late 1870s. However, he was involved in several lengthy patent disputes with Thomas Edison over his claims to the light bulb. One of these actions regarded the incandescent bulb, for which Maxim claimed that Edison was credited by means of his better understanding of patenting law. Maxim claimed that an employee of his had falsely patented the invention under his own name and that Edison proved the employer's claim to be false and which eventually allowed him to to, to screw him out of out of uh, screw him out of that that project and to he allowed him to manufacture the light bulb without crediting Maxim as a true inventor and what other wizards had disputes with Edison. Do you, does any of those come to mind for you, Adam? Just not to put you on the spot, but Tesla? Tesla, exactly. Bingo. Let's see what the 
the peanut gallery had to say. Yep, Tesla. Yeah, I've actually been to Edison's house as well. Oh, neat. Very fun place to go if you're ever in Florida. It's uh, definitely worth the stop. Huh. I remember they had one of the, uh, um, his, oh, what is it? I forget what you call it, but the old record players, the first ones that he created. Where there's still like bite marks on the frame because his hearing was so bad that he would bite onto the wood to be able to hear the reverberations. Oh, crazy. So this guy was deaf too. Interesting. So, uh, Azazel, I don't know why he ends this class with this book, a science fiction novel by Garrett Service called Edison's uh, Conquest of Mars. And uh, Edison didn't have anything to do with the writing of this book, but uh, it's essentially a sequel to what happens after the War of Worlds. You remember that movie, but ramped up more. Uh, like, imagine, yeah. Just in 1898, science fiction mashup novel by American astronomer and astronomer and writer Garrett Service. Uh, Edison's Conquest for Mars was written as a sequel to The Fighters from Mars, an unauthorized and heavily altered version of H.G. Wells' 1897 story, The War of the Worlds. It has a place in the history of science fiction for its early development of themes and motifs that later became staples of the genre. I don't know what this has to do with Hiram other than his beef with Edison, and this happens to be a book about Edison's conquest of Mars, which Edison had nothing to do with the writing of this book. But interestingly enough, um, one of the things in the book, uh, supposedly that this fictional fake character Edison came up with was the uh, disintegration ray, like, you know, the one that Marvin the Marsden uses, the disintegration gun. So it's just the, the start of that uh, that type of some, some long-standing motifs and, and themes in the science fiction genre. But, yeah, so here's this little excerpt from Testing the Disintegrator from the book that he provides. Um, I'll put the wiki link to it in the show notes if anybody's interested in looking at this later. Um, here's a picture of Marvin the Martian next to Kaiser Wilhelm of uh, Germany or Emperor William. And these could all also just be like archetypal, you know, repeats in history. You right. know what I mean? But every, yeah, everything's a copy of a copy. Mm -hmm. So uh, to end with, flash forward to November 1916. As millions of Europe's young men were busy machine-gunning each other to death in World War I, the inventor of the weapon died, a very rich man in a knight of the realm. His invention had revolutionized warfare. The centuries-old infantry advance became useless, as it could be simply mown down. Consequently, armies retreated into trenches while the generals worked out how on earth to fight this new kind of war. The man who had brought about this murderous step change was quietly buried in a South London cemetery. And then here are all the links that he provides, which I will put in the show notes. Uh, class dismissed. And always remember, 
always remember the work of an unknown good man has done the work an unknown good man has done is like a vein of water flowing hidden underground secretly making the ground green thomas carlisle this has been hiram maxim wizard of the day green wizard of the day profile in green wizardry so now you know why uh, subterranean warfare came about hopefully that was enlightening i sure learned a whole lot in doing the research and, and that concludes our mini series of the overview of four factions and what their flavors look like but uh, what do you think about that schema in general just this this idea of you know these four teams going back into now for as long as we can remember at, at, at odds with each other does that is that too far-fetched adam or is it does it make hatfields and the mccoys no yeah no you know just kind of like i was talking earlier about you know like uh you know an industry is built and then it runs like a machine you know what happened with the oil industry because of the diesel brothers still living and breathing today it's you know everything's that way thoughts ideas um i assume that magic and everything else behind the scenes can kind of have that you know spreads like a wildfire type of uh energy energistic aspect so yeah i i could absolutely see things and themes that just run through history yeah for sure i don't know if there's a like a central governing like power to the the factions i mean the reds probably have one for sure well and maybe i'm abstracting this too much but you know try assigning meaning to the seasons you know but they're going to happen but every winter is not the same every summer is not the same there's still bigger you know global things there's still ice ages within those seasons uh and i don't know i just say see themes and things like that can also be kind of you know in the underpinnings of reality kind of seasonal in their their own way you know like the ages the age of aquarius the age of you know it yeah morality has seasons it does morality changes for sure like i know uh, one of the things going through catholic school taught me was that moral relativism is a, a no-no right like there was there's one true thing and that's that's all there is right but that changes society changes morals change that's right and that we're always judging it against history his story right who's writing that anyway mm-hmm. you can write your own story the victors or maybe it's even weirder than that maybe it's live in the moment bill because the moment this reality maybe why history seems to have a new flavor is that when you change this reality all the other connected realities also change and if you are that thing as a society as as a race of people individually and then all of us collectively uh whatever flavor of history we are living and experiencing now is also the forward and uh, i guess the future and the past as well does that make sense 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. You hit you. Uh, yeah, it's all fractals. Exactly. And uh, those who control the knowledge we have about our past have much more say over where we go in the future. But that's getting off on another tangent. Uh, exactly don't let people know how powerful their thoughts are and then use things like advertising to manipulate them into the reality that you want yeah 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 but speaking of stories and manipulation manifesting uh turning our attention now to the sword segment and neville goddard's 1952 the power of awareness uh, this chapter called Attention is only one page, front and back, so super short, but very, um, it hits home. It, it, it did for me anyway. And I only read this once before trying to read it on air or on the recording here, so forgive me if I kind of stumble through it. But starts out with a Bible verse, of course, from James chapter 1, verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Attention is forceful in proportion to the narrowness of its focus. That is, when it is observed with a single idea or sensation. It is steadied and powerfully focused only by such an adjustment of the mind as permits you to see one thing only. For you steady the attention and increase its power by confining it. The desire which realizes itself is always a desire upon which attention is exclusively concentrated or an idea is endowed with power only in proportion to the degree of attention fixed on it concentrated observation is the attentive attitude directed from some specific end the attentive attitude involves selection i.e. choice, right? For when you pay attention, it signifies that you have decided to focus your attention on one object or state rather than another. Therefore, when you know what you want, you must deliberately focus your attention on the feeling of your wish fulfilled until the feeling fills the mind and crowds all other ideas out of consciousness. The power of attention is the measure of your inner force. Concentrated observation of one thing shuts out other things and causes them to disappear. The great secret of success is to focus the attention on the feeling of the wish fulfilled without permitting any distraction. All progress depends upon an increase of attention. The ideas which impel you to action are those which dominate the consciousness, those which possess the attention. Another quote from Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. This one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I press forward the mark. This means you, this one thing you can do forgetting those things that are behind you can press forward the mark of fulfilling your mind 
with the feeling of the wish fulfilled. To the unenlightened man, this will seem to be all fantasy. Yet all progress comes from those who do not take the accepted view, nor accept the world as it is. As was stated heretofore, if you can imagine what you please, and if the forms of your thought are as vivid as the forms of nature, you are, by virtue of the power of your imagination, master of your fate. And I would like to add in here my own little tidbit that makes you a freaking sorcerer. Like, you're a badass. Uh, your imagination is you yourself, and the world, as your imagination sees it, is the real world. When you set out to master the movements of attention, you must be done. I'm sorry. When you set out to master the movements of attention, which must be done if you would successfully alter the course of observed events, it is then you realize how little control you exercise over your imagination and how much it is dominated by sensory impressions and by a drifting on the tides of idle of idle moods idle moods to aid in mastering the control of your attention practice this exercise night after night just before you drift off to sleep strive to hold your attention on the activities of the day in reverse order focus your attention on the last thing you did that is getting into bed and then move it backward in time over the events until you reach the first event of the day getting out of bed this is no easy exercise but just as specific exercises greatly help in developing specific muscles this will greatly help in developing the muscle of your attention your attention must be developed controlled and concentrated in order to change your concept of yourself successfully and thereby change your future Imagination is able to do anything, but only according to the internal direction of your attention. If you persist night after night, sooner or later you will awaken in yourself a center of power and become conscious of your greater self, the real you. Attention is developed by repeated exercise or habit. Through habit, an action becomes easier, and so in course of time, gives rise to a facility or faculty which can then be put to higher uses. When you attain control of the internal direction of your attention, you will no longer stand in shallow water, but will launch out into the deep of life. You will walk in the assumption of the wish fulfilled as on a foundation more solid even than earth. The end. So, yeah, well, relatively short uh, excerpt or chapter there from Neville. Uh, first impressions, Adam? Anything pop out to you? Um, I, no, nothing specific. Well, yeah. Um, I I circled a few words. Um, the attentive attitude involves selection. So yeah, just 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 to tie it into the theme of the segment, right? Being a uh, exercising our, our choice right our free will we're going to be a victim or, or a hero right being a hero requires radical uh, responsibility mm -hmm. so not really something that 
you can do when you're a victim. Um, the other thing that I that I circled was uh, the great secret of success is to focus the attention on the feeling of the wish fulfilled without permitting any distraction. So this reminded me of um, Paul. Who was it? Not Paul. Uh, Napoleon. Napoleon Hill. And uh, outwitting the devil. So problem of evil, something that we'll get into on another show, right? Um, is simpler than one might think, especially after reading uh, that winning the devil book in that um, the devil only needs to distract you for like a split second. So it's, it's the distraction that, uh, that is the tricky part, right? It's, it's not necessarily, you know, an evil thing. It's distraction. It's easy to overcome if you try. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that book later, and I think, oh yeah, the exercise with uh, going back in reverse order through you know, throughout your day, I have tried that, um, not not consistently or over a long period of time, but uh, I always it, it, when I do try it, I always seem to fall asleep before I get to the beginning of the day. So I don't know, maybe there's something to that. Have you ever tried that, or any? Do you have any? Tricks to help you fall asleep? Or any exercises? No, I have an incredibly difficult time falling asleep, but not in the traditional sense. Um, when I'm really, really tired, I can, I just, I lay down and I'm out. If I lay down in the bed and I've been laying down for five minutes, I have to get up because I'm not going to go to sleep. So my way of doing it is usually get so tired that i just have to go to bed yeah. or eat a bunch of carbs oh yeah carb oatmeal take some oatmeal coma naps pop tarts bioengineered ingredients tbhq mm. gotta get my daily fruits fruit taste flavors they're artificial and uh natural flavors speaking of another great segue to uh something that is neither artificial nor flavored weird segue uh our free scalar i like it <laughs> free scalar energy session fridays uh this has still been going on even though i'm not putting out episodes every week or haven't been right but Derek does have this free service that he offers on a weekly basis to anybody that just wants to sign up. All you need to do is put your name in the hat, so to speak. And that all that involves is going through a checkout process on the website, but it's free. So you're not buying anything. You just have to get your name in there, right? So head on over to Derek's website. There's a whole page that explains what exactly Scalar Energy is. There's links to studies. There's so much information over there. So uh, because we're short on time now, I will lead you or lead, you know direct you to over there to to learn more about what exactly scalar energy is. But for this coming Friday, the session is going to be focused on digestion and gut health. So helping helping boost our, our part of our immune system, right? So good stuff. I've already signed up. I think you should too. Um, starts at Friday at noon Eastern, I believe. 
So if you do sign up and you feel anything weird or you just want to write the show, you can reach us at chrononotbill at mail.com. That is the show's email address, the best way to get a hold of us. Um, Link will be in the show notes. And we are, are grateful to be sponsored. We don't have to ask for any donations because the sponsor foots the bills or foots the takes care of the bills for us, right? So, uh, but I would just ask you to to share the show, right? Help help spread the love, uh, however you can. Um, rate the show, possibly if you're really enjoying it. Uh, give us a nice rating on whatever uh, review or whatever service that you're using. Until next time, Chrononauts, vibrate high and carpe diem. <laughs>